0: Well, today is the day over the past few months. We've been considering the first of 10 issues where the Corinthian church needs to change and which the gospel addresses the gospel of course is what God has accomplished in Jesus death and resurrection for sin and in consequence will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. The first issue Paul addresses, of course, has been dividing over church teachers. The other nine are tolerating incest, which will begin next week, Lord willing, uh, bringing lawsuits against one another, excusing sexual immorality, having sex and marriage, staying single, getting divorced, and getting married. That's all one issue eating food offered to idols, wearing head coverings, abusing the Lord's Supper, desiring and using spiritual gifts, and denying that God will resurrect believers. Ten issues in all that the gospel directly confronts. And this first issue, dividing over church teachers, is a big unit. It's four chapters in length. In fact, Paul devotes more words to this issue than to any other in the book. More than desiring and using spiritual gifts, more than eating food offered to idols, and today is the last sermon in this unit, part seven, the, the biblical number for perfection, so make of that what you will. Uh, our sermon today is entitled, The Cross and Christian Leadership. Christian, let me ask, have you ever desired, have you ever dreamed of being a great leader uh, I'm, I'm seeing some embarrassed downward glances <laughs> i assume we all have perhaps when we were younger before the weight of the world crushed our spirits but uh, what did your what did your mind conjure up as you fantasized about being a great leader what what did what does leadership look like well, I suppose it depends upon the field, uh, but you probably, you probably daydream about being the best, right, or, or at least better than most in your field. Uh, you, you can't be a leader and then be a complete non-talent. Uh, when we dream about being a leader, we succeed, right, where others fail, uh, we win adulation. We, we, we earn applause. To be a leader may mean fame, money, and, and freedom from responsibilities and humdrum existence of the ordinary mortals out there. To be a leader means to win respect. If you ever been in the presence of somebody who is an acknowledged leader in their field, you see the respect that goes towards that person. Now, only, only rarely do those who dream of leadership think through the responsibilities and the pressures and the temptations that leaders face, the accountability, the service, and the suffering. Throughout 1 Corinthians 1-4, through Paul is primarily concerned to address the factionalism, the division, that's tearing the church in Corinth apart with squabbles and jealousy and one-upmanship, And as we've seen, the quarreling arose from different groups within the church, groups aligning themselves exclusively with various well-known Christian leaders. So some are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, to the exclusion of these other leaders in the church. They were adopting the model of their surrounding culture. They were infatuated with sophist teachers, many of whom prized form above above content and prestige, above humility. And so Paul's approach has been, over these four chapters, to return to the basics and explain what it means to confess Christ crucified. Uh, To disabuse the Corinthians of the evil of their tendency to lionize certain Christian leaders and ignore others in the church and addressed several Corinthian misconceptions regarding the nature of genuine Christian leadership. What's he told them? What have we learned? We've learned Christian leaders are only servants of Christ. They're farmhands, they're stewards, Paul says, and aren't to be accorded allegiance reserved for God alone. So if you ever want to call me Farmhand John... Go right ahead, I won't be the least upset. And as servants, they're accountable to God for the kind of ministry they exercise in the church. Since God cares about the church, he holds its leaders to account. And he threatens, we've seen, judgment on all who destroy his church. In chapter 4, our text today, Paul is still struggling with the factionalism of the Corinthian believers And this passage today gives us a lot of insight into what it means to be a Christian leader. Obviously, this text isn't all the Bible has to say on that very important subject, but there are principles here that we find that are of tremendous importance. And they're all tied to the cross. And this gets to the heart of something very important, and it's something I want to make clear from the start. Many Christians, mistakenly, view the cross exclusively as the means by which God, in Christ Jesus, achieved our redemption. That's as far as they take it. Many Christians believe the gospel, as it's biblically and richly and fully understood, is merely announcing to sinners how to be saved from God's condemnation. That, that believing the gospel guarantees you won't go to hell, and that's where the gospel stops. At, at that point, the Christian can safely put the cross of Jesus Christ up on a shelf. It served its full purpose. And, and now the time has come for real, the real discipleship and, and personal transformation to begin, but it's transformation through a host of church programs, Uh, or scripture memorization, or accountability groups, or journaling, or group Bible studies, or whatever. But do do you see the problem? The gospel introduces us to the church, but from that point on, it's the various counseling techniques and therapy sessions and church programs that will really change our Christian life and make us happy and fruitful. And so what's really essential to Christian growth and what we really get excited about is something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means there is a real danger in the church of the gospel's primacy being displaced. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not slamming Bible studies and scripture memorization and accountability relationships. Those are all good things, but they are not post post-gospel disciplines. They must never be a means of grace divorced from what God has accomplished in the gospel of his crucified and resurrected son. The gospel and the gospel's power doesn't stop at salvation. The gospel itself ought to shape everything we do in life all of our ethics, all of our prioritizations, and all of our relationships. Obviously, we don't want to minimize the centrality of the cross in God's redemptive purposes, but if we view it only as the means of our salvation and nothing more, then we'll overlook many of its functions in the New Testament. In particular, brothers and sisters, we'll fail to see how the cross stands as the test and the standard of all Christian ministry. Hence our sermon titled today, The Cross and Christian Leadership. New City, the cross not only establishes what we're to preach, but how we're to preach. The cross prescribes what Christian leaders must be and how Christians must view christian leaders the cross tells us how to serve and draws us onward in discipleship so if you look at your bulletin we begin with an apostolic rebuke in verse 6 and we see that the apostles not the corinthians model god's wisdom because the apostles live in light of the cross Verse 6 of chapter 4. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things. That is all I've written from chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 5. Everything we've been looking at over the last six, seven Sundays. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. So Paul's being applying... At his argument to the sinful Paul-Apollos-Cephas competition in order to benefit his Corinthian brothers and sisters. And he says, Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. I mean, how, how could they? If they've been following along, if they've been tracking along with what uh, Paul's been writing, if they understood it, they're putting into practice all that he said in these opening chapters... They'll be much more interested in taking pride in Christ crucified than anything else, right? Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, not in some Christian leader. One upmanship among those who are redeemed by Jesus the Messiah, that is just repulsive. It's repulsive. Which is, he then follows this by three rhetorical questions. And and these questions, brothers and sisters, these need to be applied to ourselves as well. It's not just for the Corinthians, it's for us. Look at verse 7. Consider this, for who makes you different from anyone else? Anyone else in this church? Anyone else who's a Christian? What makes you different? Nothing. (laughs) You don't have the right to make such a judgment. I'm special. I'm unique somehow. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything you have is a gift from God. And if you did receive it, which you did, why do you boast as though you did not? So, rather than being puffed up, the Corinthians should be humble. Everything they have is a God-given gift that they've received. Everything. Which means, Christian, in this context, if you've received some special help or insight or strength to the service of one particular church leader... Or teacher, that's one of God's gracious gifts to you. And it's not to be a cause for pride. This is true of everything that you've received that's of value. Even if you've worked really hard, isn't the ability to work in large measure the fruit of good health and an upbringing that's bred discipline and responsibility for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That's all chapter, verse 7. This kind of judgmentalism in being a follower of one leader in the church over against another is prompted by pride. That's what Paul's saying. And it's characterized by disgusting arrogance. The irony is, and he's taken four chapters to lay this out, this pride is being leveled against those in the church who have been entrusted with the mysteries of God. Those men who have been entrusted with the gospel of the crucified Messiah, which is the good news by which these very same judgmental people are saved. How can any thoughtful Christian be arrogant when they're standing beside the cross of Jesus Christ? But also, beyond their pride, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for getting their eschatology wrong, their doctrine of last things. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, Paul doesn't take them to task for miscounting toes on statues in Daniel or miscounting horns on beasts in Revelation. I, I know that's what many Christians think when someone mentions getting eschatology wrong. Uh, No, what they've got wrong is the balance regarding the already here, not yet come, kingdom of Jesus Christ. That balance is off. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a second, but this is a common, common mistake even today. In the Corinthian case, the worldly values of their culture are negatively influencing the church to proudly overemphasize the already aspects of God's kingdom by thinking they've already begun to reign. And so as we move into verse 8, we need to understand that the next four exclamations are positively dripping with irony. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us... How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. So it's, it's plain to see. The way the Corinthians view themselves is, it stands in sharp contrast with the thankfulness and the humility that's, in, that's required in verse 7. Chapter 7, or verse 7 and, and verse 8, they're, they're polarized contrasts. Instead, these Corinthians are smug, they're self satisfied, they're comfortable, and they're proud. Already, You have all that you want, Paul says, with the result that they don't hunger for what they don't yet have. They're completely content, completely satisfied. They've taken as far as they can. (laughs) Already you have become rich, so there's no need to seek spiritual wealth or to heed Jesus' injunction to lay up treasure in heaven. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. Now, this is something I've gone into great length in other sermons. So I'm just going to give you the cliff notes today. Uh, but this is a super, super important concept for Christians to nail down. I would advise, I've advised in the past, if you have your own Bible, actually to write this down in the, in the, in the flyleaf, you know, so you actually it's there. You can consult it. When the New Testament speaks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, those are the same things, uh, as it relates to time, there is always, always, an already here, not yet come tension. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming. Already, not yet. What does that look like? Well, the Bible teaches that Christians already enjoy something of the benefits of God's kingdom even now, doesn't it? Uh... Brothers and sisters, we've been acquitted before God. I mean, that last times, that that judgment day verdict has been brought back into the present for us. We've been acquitted. We've been justified. We possess eternal life in the presence of the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the final inheritance and the forgiveness of sins. We have that now. We enjoy that now. Uh, We enjoy deep fellowship with other children of God and assurance that our risen Savior and Lord is already reigning with his Father's authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. That's the already here, some of the already here, component of things. And if we want to get fancy, this is referred to as realized or uh, inaugurated eschatology. And yet, Christians don't enjoy all the blessings now, that one day will be ours in the future. There's still something to look forward to. Uh, We still await the day when King Jesus returns from heaven to consummate his kingdom, don't we? That hasn't happened yet. Um, It's only in the future that there will be the abolition of death, the utter destruction of the power of sin, possession of resurrection bodies. We're still waiting for that. A new heavens, a new earth, untarnished worship, with the triune God. And the bliss of undiluted love and unblemished holiness and the perfection of Christian fellowship. As much as I love my brothers and sisters at New City, as much as we strive to be a holy people, that is not what we're experiencing in its absolute fullness yet. Undiluted love, unblemished holiness, the perfection of Christian fellowship. That awaits the last day. This is called futurist eschatology and this already not yet eschatological tension is very important to keep in balance the church needs to be making distinctions all the time between what is yet to come and what has shatteringly unexpectedly and magnificently arrived in the here and now some of the corinthians have an over realized eschatology What does an over-realized eschatology look like? Well, in our day, a Christian who says that every believer is guaranteed physical healing and a healthy body now, in this life, by his stripes we are healed, that person has an over-realized eschatology. We don't have resurrection bodies yet. They're bringing elements of God's kingdom that still await the future into the present. And this is what the Corinthians are doing. Both Jews who look forward to the coming of the Messiah and Christians who look forward to his return believe that his people will reign with the Messiah. The Corinthians, they're reading this back into the present and they feel that like they've already begun to reign. They were bringing elements of God's future kingdom into the present. Verse 8, you have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. Because that would mean Jesus had returned. That the consummated kingdom of Christ had begun. And that all Christians were now participating in this. But if not, if that's actually not the case, then that means the Corinthians are badly, badly mistaken. And it's plain to see that their over-realized eschatology is tied to their sinful pride and to their endless one-upmanship. And so the Apostle Paul, he pricks their, their massive pretensions. How does he do that? He assesses the status of the acknowledged leaders of the church, the 12 Apostles. And now we come to the heart of Paul's rebuke, which is this. You can see this in your bulletin. The Apostles, not the Corinthians, they model God's wisdom Because the apostles live in light of the cross. That's a reality that's completely gone over the heads of the Corinthians. And he's been banging away at that for four chapters. Verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena. And and this imagery, of course, is drawn from the... uh, the the triumphal processions of returning roman legions the senior military people as they're going through the parade they would come first then the more junior ones uh, behind them the prisoners would be dragged along in descending order of rank and then among the, the defeated foes the lowest classes and the slaves they would be bringing up the rear they're just eating everybody else's dust knowing that they were destined for the arena they they would die at the hands of gladiators or they would just be simply thrown to wild beasts for the amusement of the people. In fact, Paul says, since the stage on which the struggles of the church are being played out take place in the spiritual arena, every bit as much as the physical, the apostles, verse 9, part B, have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. To angels as as to human beings. But do you see his point here? If this is how Jesus' own apostles are faring, how is it that you Corinthians think you've advanced so far ahead? There's a disconnect somewhere. Uh, Verse 10a, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. And of course, Paul and his fellow apostles are fools only because they've sided with the foolishness of the cross. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. Again, if the apostles are weak, it's because they align themselves with the weakness of God, a weakness that is, in fact, is far stronger than all human strength. If they're dishonored, they're dishonored by a world that finds the cross foolish, while the only honor the Corinthians have received is self-honor. Verse 11, To this very hour, we, the apostles, go hungry, and thirsty we are in rags we are brutally treated we are homeless we work hard with our own hands when we are cursed we bless when we are persecuted we endure it when we are slandered we answer kindly who does that sound like the sunday school answer jesus right bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing We have become, let's do this, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Right up to this moment, bringing eschatology in there, right? Right up to this moment, we are garbage and scum. He's saying, we apostles are all that is despised in a society of beautiful and successful people. Now, I don't think it's necessary to actually unpack all of these shocking lines in detail, but just taken as a whole, They're all supposed to remind us of Jesus. That's the big picture here. What did the prophet Isaiah write in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant? Talking about Jesus, the suffering servant, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. But brothers and sisters. Suffering isn't for Jesus alone. The cross sets a paradigm for all of his followers. Not power. Not prestige. Not pride. Suffering. Paul testifies to the Philippians that he wants to experience not only the power of Christ's resurrection, but what? Also, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, Philippians 3.10. He writes to the Christians in Rome and tells them that believers are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if, indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, Romans 8.17. Romans 8.17. Paul's not saying that good Christians suffer the same amount. uh, But what's at stake for Paul is a fundamental stance, a Christian stance, a fundamental way of looking at things as we're followers of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I've said this many times before, I'm going to say it many times in the future, we follow a crucified Messiah. Never forget that. There were no kingly displays of power and pomp and pride that day outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, only what looked like to human eyes a pathetic spectacle of weakness and shame. And if that is our leader, beloved, if that's our God, if that's our king, suffering, naked, ashamed, How are we to follow such a person? In light of Jesus' cross, what does true discipleship to Jesus look like? What does greatness look like in a kingdom ruled over by a rejected and crucified king? What does leadership in this king's church look like? And what will it cost us to follow such a king? These questions are fundamental to our self-understanding as Christians. Truly, this is as basic as it gets. This is Christianity 101. Our understanding of Jesus' messiahship must impact our understanding of our Christian discipleship. They go hand in glove, both for the church and the leaders of the church. What did Jesus say in Luke 9? Whoever wants to be my disciple. And just a friend I want to ask, is that something you would like to be? Would you like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then listen carefully. Jesus says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. And follow me. All Jesus' disciples must learn that to be the follower of a crucified, spat-upon Messiah entails a painful renunciation to self-interest. And a wholehearted turn to Jesus' interests. Wholehearted. We no longer, if we're Christians, if we're his disciples, we no longer live for ourselves. Those days are over. We live for Christ. Christian, Jesus calls you to deny yourself, to pick up your instrument of shame and death and torture, and follow him to Golgotha. And if that's not happening, it means that there is a satanic disconnect in your understanding between the nature of Jesus' messiahship and your Christian discipleship. The kind of life we live, every single facet of it, is based on the kind of death Jesus endured. The apostles, not the Corinthians, they model God's wisdom because the apostles live in light of the cross. And so must we. Now, despite the the biting irony he's just deployed in the previous paragraph. Paul now insists in verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Now, at one level, of course, he is shaming them, uh, but that's not the reason Paul writes as he does. He's writing to warn them, or more accurately translated, many commentators say, to admonish them, to correct them, to encourage them in the right way. He's their father. Even if you have... Had had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. What he's getting at here is that in the first century Hellenistic household, the guardian was usually a trusted slave who was put in charge of the child, usually the son. Uh, at two, and he would take the son to and from school, and he would supervise his conduct. He was that child's guardian. This guardian, he exercised a certain authority over the child, of course, but never equal to that of the father. Paul w- was the one who first brought the gospel to the Corinthians. So in that sense, he alone became their father. And he became the Corinthians' father through the gospel, verse 15. He preached the gospel to them, and they believed that. He preached to them what God had accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. So his relationship with the Corinthian church was something that could never be duplicated, no matter who comes after him. Paul planted the seed we saw, others watered it. Paul laid the foundation, others built the superstructure on top of that foundation that he already laid. Paul became their father through the gospel, others since him have served as guardians. Therefore, Paul writes, I urge you to imitate me. Verse 16. Now, the logic that's implied by the therefore may escape us. But in the first century, sons were expected to imitate their fathers vocationally. If the father was a baker, then the son was a baker. If the father was a shepherd, the son became a shepherd. This is how it worked. The son was expected to carry on the family values, the family heritage, the family name. Therefore... If Paul became the father of the Corinthians, they ought to imitate him. But imitate him how? Imitate him in what? Judging by the context of these chapters, what Paul wants them to imitate is his passion to live life in light of the cross. When Paul says, imitate me, He doesn't expect them to suffer in exactly the same way that he suffered. He's not demanding that they all become apostles or plant churches in distant lands. But what he does expect is that they'll imitate his gospel-saturated values. He expects them to imitate his stance with respect to this passing world. He expects them to imitate his prioritizations. Because for Paul... The centrality of the gospel of God's crucified Son is absolute. It controls absolutely everything in his life. 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you, hear this, of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere. In every church. Now, that is a powerhouse verse. Notice that Paul isn't sending Timothy along to the Corinthians to lay before them a whole bunch of doctrine. He's sending his beloved apostolic delegate, he calls him his son, to remind the Corinthians of his way of life in Christ Jesus. And he can do that, of course, Because biblical Christianity embraces both creed and conduct, belief and behavior. Just look at that verse again. He will remind you of my way of life, my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and every church. Judging by the first four chapters, many of the Corinthians weren't making the connections between what they believed and how they should live. They'd be the first. The Corinthians would be the first to insist that, yes, Jesus died for their sins, and he rose again. But they couldn't grasp how this historical reality, the supreme moment in God's redemptive purposes, not only achieved their salvation, but then the next essential step must shape the way that they actually live. Paul Carter is the lead pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia. He's a, a TGC Canada council member. He has a very popular podcast called Into the, Into the Word. I would, I would recommend it to everybody. I think he's a, he's a man whose ministry I've really come to appreciate over the past number of years. Paul has 100 times the level of personal interaction with other Christians through social media than anybody else I know, maybe with the exception of Tim Challies. Uh, he wrote this on his Facebook wall the other week. And at first blush, you might think this is unloving and over the top, but it's not. Not if what the apostle says here is in any way true. And we'll be looking more at this in the weeks to come as we look at things, matters of church discipline in chapter five. But Pastor Carter wrote this given the current state of the church in North America, today I'm adopting a new resolution. I will no longer consider someone a Christian based on merely their theological affirmations and tribal alliances. I want to see some actual Jesus-like character and Holy Spirit fruit. Does that seem fair? There's a lot of mean-spirited, fruitless Dogmatism masquerading as Christianity. And I just can't take it seriously anymore. Fruit is a thing. Galatians five, twenty two to twenty three, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law god help and again and we'll be looking into this matter of a person's fruit matching their profession of faith next week as we step into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 lord willing and the biblical practice of church discipline so, Paul sends Timothy, his delegate, to remind his, his, uh, his sons and daughters in Corinth of his way of life. That's why, Timothy, remind them of my way of life, how I live, and actually that it agrees with what I teach in all the churches. And what this suggests pastor alex pastor alex is never here for my applications to him directly he's always with heidi but he has to hear it on the podcast so pastor alex what this suggests brother is that christian leaders today must not only teach the gospel but must also teach how the gospel works out in daily life and conduct and that union must be modeled as well as explained elders lead by example God tells pastors to shepherd the church, 1 Peter 5, 3, not by lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. And so, not surprisingly, the New Testament list of elder qualifications focus predominantly on character. It's like the real estate maxim, location, location, location. For pastors in the church, it's character, character, character. Because an elder's most basic job, most basic job is to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that mandate to model maturity carries two critical implications. First, modeling means pastors must guard their own godliness. 1 Timothy four sixteen. This is actually was the commissioning text that I preached to Alex. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Which then leads to a second implication. Modeling requires elders to be among the people. This only works, what we're reading here, if people see him up close. So the pastor needs to open up his life the church members he needs to invite them into his home his hobbies his ministry people need a, a first-hand experience of how he handles stress how he relates to his wife how he responds to difficult people and humbly admits it when he blows it however this modeling isn't only restricted to pastors There's there's a famous song, I've mentioned this before, but there's a famous song in the Audrey Hepburn musical, My Fair Lady. Have you seen that? You need to watch My Fair Lady. It's an excellent movie. But there's a song with the words, uh, with the lines, words, words, words. I'm so sick of words. Sing me no song. Read me no rhyme. Don't waste my time. Show me. And because our culture retains fewer and fewer values from its Judeo Christian years, fewer and fewer practical habits of life, I think are being just picked up by osmosis. They must be taught and modeled. How do you have family devotions? How do you bring up your children? How do you pray? What are the habits you and your spouse have adopted to bring your marriage into greater conformity with the word of God? What do you do with your money? What does Christian hospitality look like? How does one nurture a godly mind? What does it mean to be passionate for Christ and for his gospel? How do you share your faith? Exactly what does self-denial mean? Many people want to see the truth, not just hear it preached from a pulpit. The gospel message is adorned and given new credibility when people perceive that it's taken root in our lives, brothers and sisters. Sing me no song, read me no rhyme, don't waste my time, show me. Follow my example as I followed the example of Christ. That can be all of our watchwords. Christian, have, have you ever said to someone relatively new in the Christian faith, one younger in the faith than yourself, do you want to know how a Christian thinks, how a Christian acts, how a Christian woman submits to her husband, how a Christian man sacrificially loves his wife? How a Christian relativizes the importance of worldly status, money, power, career. How a Christian doesn't live in bondage to anxiety and fear. Then watch me. Have you ever said that? Then watch me. Watch how I act, how I talk, how I react. Imitate me. Watch me. Here's how to pray. Let me teach you. Imitate me. Let me take you through some of the fundamentals of the faith, and at the other end, you'll also know how to do a Bible study. Let me show you how to be a Christian father or a Christian mother. Imitate me. Do you struggle with mental health? So do I. Imitate me. Are you married to an unbeliever? So am I. Imitate me in faithful living despite the hardships. Are you physically disabled? So am I. Imitate me. Are you single and 30? Single and 40? Single and 50? So am I. Imitate me. But this applies to pastors, first of all. Fellow farmhand, Alex. Faithful Christian leaders must make the connections between creed and conduct, between the cross and how to live. And we must exemplify this union in our own lives before the church. Our final section, Paul's warning to the believers, verses 18 to 21. Now, Paul is the first to recognize that just sending off this one letter isn't going to clear up all the problems. We do have Second Corinthians as well. Uh, In this case, the sad state of affairs is traceable to a segment of the church that Paul labels as arrogant. In most institutions, and this is true the world over, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, uh, in most institutions, a relatively small number of people largely shapes the opinions of virtually the entire body. In this case, these arrogant self-appointed opinion makers have not only swayed the congregation but they're openly banking on paul's continued absence look at verse 18 this is coming from an apostle he should be putting the fear of god into them some of you have become arrogant as if i were not coming to you big mistake but i will come to you very soon if the lord is willing and then i will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking but what power they have and then paul sets up a contrast for the kingdom of god is not a matter of talk but of power the corinthians they were so enamored with form and rhetoric that showing off with eloquence had become more important to them than the gospel They were enamored with words of eloquent wisdom that empty the Messiah's cross of its power, that make it useless. Paul's already said this. Sure, they talk big, but they're like a little chihuahua crazily barking at a Doberman. I have a dog now, so I see this happen all the time where little chihuahuas have no brains (laughs) and they have no fear either. And a Doberman can just take them and shake them and break their neck like that, but they don't care. They just keep barking crazily at Dobermans. Look back with me at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1b. He says, "'When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence "'or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you "'the testimony about God. "'For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you "'except Jesus Christ and him crucified.'" I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So, when Paul does come to Corinth next, he's not going to be impressed by anybody's words. He won't really care how these arrogant people are talking, no matter how eloquent their rhetoric may be. No, he will be interested in only one thing. What power do they have? And considering everything the apostles already written in chapters 1, 18 through to chapter 2, verse 5, this is the power of the gospel. It's the power to forgive, the power to transform, the power to call men and women out of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear son. Mere talk, even brilliant talk, will not change people. Only the gospel can. So Paul's going to ask to see their credentials. What people has your eloquence, your human wisdom, your rhetoric, whatever, genuinely transformed by bringing them into a personal knowledge of the crucified Messiah? That's what he's going to ask. Paul's going to expose them when he arrives for the empty religious windbags that they are. But it's possible that his threats actually go deeper than that. At the beginning of the next chapter, Paul deals directly with a man whose sexual sin cries out to be confronted by the discipline of the church, which they haven't done. Instead, the church is actually proud of their supposed freedom their liberty to act in such a sinful way however paul expects the church to hand this man over to satan chapter 5 verse 5 or look at chapter 5 verse 3 this is excommunication for my part even though i'm not physically present i am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way i am have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. And there's evidence elsewhere in the New Testament that where the church is unwilling to exercise this sort of discipline, Paul will take apostolic action by himself. In Ephesus, for instance, where two men had shipwrecked their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, whom... I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, 1 Timothy one twenty, And in a later epistle to the Corinthians, Paul warns that he might have to be harsh in his use of his apostolic authority if they don't get their house in order, 2 Corinthians 13.10. In other words, bringing the people of God to consistent Christian living in the light of the gospel of the crucified Messiah, that is so important to the Apostle Paul that he will not turn from his goal. If he moves people in this direction by encouragement and admonition, it's all good. That's excellent. But if severe discipline is called for, he will not hesitate. He will not flinch. So Paul offers the Corinthians here a choice. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Which doesn't mean, of course, that if he comes with a, a whip or, or literally a, a rod of correction, he's continuing this father-son metaphor, that he will not love them. Uh, the contrast refers to the manner or the form of his coming, not his motives. But spanking still hurt, even if they're coming from a loving father who insists that he's spanking his son because he loves him. It's much better for the son to change his behavior, so that the manner of the Father's coming will not be with discipline, but with a gentle spirit. What's the lesson for us, New City? In short, Christian leaders dare not overlook their responsibility to lead the people of God in living a life that is a conformity with the gospel. That's why Paul urges people to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received, Ephesians 4.1. It's why Paul prays that believers may live a life worthy of the Lord, the crucified Messiah, and may please him in every way, Colossians 1.10. We're going to be looking at that verse in the next few weeks at our prayer meetings. And if the people of God dig in their heels in disobedience, there may come a time for Christian leaders to admonish, to rebuke, and ultimately to discipline firmly those who take the name of Christ but don't care to follow him. The sterner steps must never be taken hastily or lightly, and pastors and elders never take these steps uh, just by themselves. The church is involved. You take it to the church, but these are steps that must sometimes be taken. This is part of the responsibility of Christian leadership, and this theme moves into our next chapter in chapter 5, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. Amen.